0: Hi and welcome to the
1: podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan.
2: And I'm Gavin Cooper.
1: Welcome to Series 5, Episode 5. This is an episode about polycythemia vera and essential thrombocytothemia, with John Lambert, one of our haematology consultants here at UCLH. Um, we look closely at how these group of progressive blood cancers um, develop in the bone marrow and what that means in terms of treatment and monitoring over a lifelong condition.
2: John, thanks for joining us today and we're going to talk a little bit about myeloproliferative uh, my- <laughs> let's do that again, myeloproliferative <laughs> neoplasms. I think we're going to focus a little bit more on polycythemia and essential thrombocythemia. Could you give us a bit
0: of an overview of MPNs? Sure, yeah. So MPNs are kind of one of the group of, sort of hematological malignancies which tend to be treated as outpatients rather than inpatients. And the, the two commonest are essential thrombocythemia, ET, and polycythemia, Vera, PV. But myelofibrosis is another one, of the major ones, and less common ones are things like eosinophilia, mastocytosis. Some people would also include chronic myeloid leukemia. I think these days we tend to lump those in with the chronic leukemias rather than the myeloproliferative neoplasms. But there's clearly an overlap between those two groups.
1: Is it classed as a blood cancer?
0: So that's a good question. So yes is a strict answer to that. They're neoplasms, so they're cancers. It creates quite a lot of stress for patients because these are often patients who've been diagnosed in a non-malignant clinic, so particularly ET, essential thrombocythemia, and PV, polycythemia vera, patients who are otherwise well. These diseases behave often very benignly. So although, according to the WHO, they are cancers, I tend to Describe them to patients as more as kind of precancerous conditions okay. because there is an increased risk of developing sort of you know, bona fide cancers like myelofibrosis and acute myeloid leukemia, that risk is pretty small and mo for most patients ET and PV the main problems for them are thrombotic things so they're at high risk of developing blood clots particularly arterial things like uh, myocardial infarctions and strokes, and actually for most patients malignancy is not a major problem for them it, they don't tend to have the kind of the malignant symptoms you might expect. How might
1: someone be diagnosed? So is it likely someone will be diagnosed because they've developed a blood clot and then they've had bloods and they've seen that the blood is abnormal?
0: So that's right, so there's two ways. Probably the most common way is just a routine blood test. So they have a GP kind of well person check or they have a blood test for something else and someone notices their platelet count is high, so ET is is characterised by high platelet count, and PV is characterised by a high haemoglobin, sometimes called high red cell mass. And so sometimes people pick that up because their um, GP does a blood test which shows that they've got um, a high haemoglobin or high platelet count. There's lots of causes for those things, and actually, statistically, most people who've got a high haemoglobin or high platelet count won't have ET or PV, they'll have what's called a reactive cause, but eventually people work down the work list and find out they've got ET or PV, and then they'll get referred to our MPN clinic. The other kind of less common sort of source of referrals are patients who've had a blood clot, and in some cases it may be catastrophic blood clots, patients who've had either strokes or myocardial infarctions. It can be less common clots, so they may get odd, unusual venous clots in the abdomen called splanchnic vein thromboses, which are blood vessels leading out of this liver. And sometimes people do a blood test and find they've got high blood curtains and then they'll refer them on for further testing. So it's either just a routine thing or sometimes after they've had a blood clot.
1: And what, how might patients be feeling before they're diagnosed? Do they have like, Is there common,
0: common so, things they
1: might be feeling?
0: So it varies a lot. We used to think these patients were completely asymptomatic. I think more information is becoming, you know, more, as we investigate more carefully, we realise actually patients who've got MPNs, even in the absence of anything else like, you know, patients who haven't had blood clots, patients who haven't developed any kind of leukemia often do tend to be more fatigued than average. So the, the stats clearly show that. They do have a propensity towards sort of symptoms like pruritus, so generalised itching. Um, there are some very characteristic symptoms like pruritus, which is triggered by water, particularly hot water. It's called aquagenic pruritus. And that is a very classical symptom of a myeloproliferative neoplasm. One of the rare but sort of hallmark symptoms, if you like, is a burning sensation in the palms of the hands or the soles of the feet it's called erythromyalgia, and that's almost n- not seen in any other condition. So a patient who's got burning in the hands or feet one of the kind of the classical causes for that is an MPN. So those are the symptoms that patients occasionally get. Most patients to be honest actually feel pretty well, pretty normal when they're diagnosed particularly if they're diagnosed routinely or not a routine blood test. And actually that can be quite difficult for them because they're yeah. feeling well. Mm. They had the blood test, maybe the GP just checking their cholesterol and whatever once a year. And all of a sudden they have this series of tests done and four weeks later, six weeks later, they have told they've got a blood cancer. And actually one of the odd things I've found over the years of doing the MPN clinic is actually the patients are often more psychologically distressed by these relatively, if you like, minor diagnoses in some respects compared to patients who have diagnosed with other cancers, which I deal with, such as lymphoma. And actually it becomes clear that from a patient's point of view, these are not my diagnoses. These are conditions we can't cure. So actually they are mm. quite a major diagnosis from that point of view. And certainly for the first few weeks and months of being diagnosed, patients often do feel quite, quite traumatised, actually. And particularly the, way, the patients tend to come to us from a variety of different sources. You can tell, actually, sometimes if the diagnosis hasn't been handled if they've been told the diagnosis in the a, a suboptimal way sometimes yeah. they can actually have stress that goes on for months or years afterwards so actually how these patients are diagnosed and told the diagnosis is critically important people often think of it well it's not a cancer or it's a minor cancer if you like so patients often sometimes told over the phone or they're told
1: really yeah
0: um or they're told you know sort of in a busy clinic where you, we don't we don't necessarily have this full backup that you would when you're breaking a normal cancer diagnosis. So there is quite a lot of sort of psychological stress and morbidity that accompanies the these. Partly because although typically the ET and P V are diseases of patients in their sort of sixties and seventies, we see a lot of patients in their twenties, thirties and forties. So it is a disease that we do see even in teens occasionally, but certainly twenties, thirties and forties. It is a lifelong condition. It's a condition that does affect other aspects. So for instance, for women of childbearing age, it does have an impact on pregnancy. So both ET and PV do slightly increase the risk of pregnancy problems like miscarriage, like blood clots in pregnancy. Potentially also may slightly increase the risk of bleeding at childbirth as well. So they do impact on other things. So yes, these are conditions which are, remain stable and quite indolent for the vast majority of patients and can be well controlled. But they do affect them for the rest of their lives. We can't cure them, and it impacts certain aspects of their daily life. If they're having operations, they'll be potentially at high, potentially big operations. We have to be very careful that we try to mitigate any higher risks that they might have for blood clots and things. So it is something that's always kind of at the back of people's minds, even once they've had it for many years, and every so often will come to the front of their minds.
1: I suppose because it's so rare, like you say, in the way that it's yeah. maybe the news is broken, it's because lots, maybe people don't know as
0: much about it yeah obviously we see a lot of us, a lot of it i think most haematologists will have a reasonable sort of clinical cohort of patients with these conditions because obviously we have them for you know, for life basically yeah. and you know in a moment we can talk about you know, how they're diagnosed and how they're managed but basically we tend to have these patients for decades so you get to know them very well we only perhaps see them in clinic if once they're stable twice a year if that so often we won't see them that frequently, but then something might come up, like they get pregnant or they're having an operation or they have a blood clot, and suddenly there's a flurry of activity. So that's what I kind of meant. They're, so mostly, they're often at the back of the patient's minds when they're stable,
1: I see. but every so
0: often something will happen or may happen that kind of brings them to the front of everyone's mind so they need a bit more input. And occasionally they may come into hospital acutely as well with problems like blood clots. Sometimes for various reasons, although normally associate them having high blood counts, they can have low blood counts, and they'll end up in hospital needing blood transfusions or bone marrow biopsies or their medications may need to be tweaked, etc. So generally, it's an outpatient chronic stable condition, but every so often, most patients or many patients will get something, which means that they just need to have extra input at that time before they go back to kind of a period of sort of normality, if that makes sense.
2: Is the kind of the initial risk with this disease, not being diagnosed with it early and actually just coming into hospital with potentially quite a serious thrombotic
0: event? So certainly that can happen. Occasionally patients will see them come in with a blood clot and actually if you look back, you can see that they've had a high platelet count or a high haemoglobin for a year or two beforehand. And there's always a question, you know, had someone picked up on that, could that have been treated earlier? Mm. But in some cases, yes. There is the argument that had we picked them up sooner and treated them, some blood clots and some complications might have been avoided, but that's rare. Normally it's, you know, they're picked up, we pick up the abnormality, the patients are then diagnosed and treated appropriately. What's the sort of blood counts you might expect to see? So I mean strictly any platelet count over the normal range, 400, 400, 400 above 400, could indicate ET. Mm -hmm. Now, there's other things we would expect to see, potentially. Those are abnormalities in the blood, particularly specific mutations it would need before. Because I said, you know, a high platelet count, you see very often in patients who've had operations, patients who are iron deficient, patients who are anemic. Patients who've got other cancers often have a high platelet count as well. So it's usually a reactive phenomenon. But certainly yeah. someone's got a persistent high platelet count, certainly for more than six weeks, two months, you'd start to want to look without an obvious cause like iron deficiency you would start to want to look for, you know, could this be a central thrombocythemia? And then generally they'd be referred to a haematologist for investigations. And the haematologist will then do the tests to look for iron deficiency, etc. They may want to do a chest x-ray to look for infections in the lungs, which may be not obvious initially. Sometimes we might need to do whole body scans to look for occult malignancies. So that's to rule out the reactive causes. But equally we'll want to do specific tests to look for ET and the most common test we do is what's called JAK2 and that's a mutational analysis. It can be done on peripheral blood or bone marrow and basically that's looking for the mutation which drives the overproduction of platelets. Okay. And It just basically means that the platelet-producing the megakaryocytes are always switched on. They're always producing platelets rather than in a normal situation they're just producing platelets when we need them. So that means the patient's got too high platelet count. So it's a JAK2 test, it's the most common mutation we see that in about half of patients who've got ET. The other half have got a mixture of mutations, things like CALRETICULIN, MPL, and a variety of other sort of things. So we don't always see a mutation, but in about 85, 90% of patients with ET, we will pick up one of these mutations that will tell us this is ET. And then we usually, not always, go on to do a bone marrow biopsy as well and an ultrasound to look for the spleen size, because the spleen can be enlarged.
1: And once you have a diagnosis for ET... What's the next
0: step? So first of all is to make sure that it isn't myelofibrosis. So very occasionally what looks like ET on high platelet count and having a JAK2 mutation can actually be a kind of a, an occult version of myelofibrosis. So for most patients, not everyone, but most patients will tend to do a bone marrow biopsy to make sure there isn't too much scarring or reticulin or collagen fibres in the marrow. And also we'll usually do an ultrasound to look at the spleen because in ET the spleen might be mildly or moderately enlarged. Mm-hmm. But if they've got a really big spleen, then we'd wonder, could this be the, an occult form of myelofibrosis, sometimes called prefibrotic fibrotic myelofibrosis? That's the first thing, is to just make sure we've got the diagnosis absolutely clear and dry. The second thing is then to work out what we, we risk stratify the patients, generally into by age and presence of any previous blood clots. So if they're over 60, or they've had any kind of blood clot in the past, or they've got Lots of risk factors for blood clots are so potentially someone who's got diabetes and hypertension or they might have you know other thrombophilic abnormalities. So they, they would all go into the high risk category but it's primarily patients over 60 who've had a cl- or who've had a clot before. We recommend that they get medication to bring their blood counts down such as hydroxycarbamide or sometimes interferon or anagrelide. They also normally get aspirin. So those are, those are the high, highest risk patients. The ones with patients who are under 60 and haven't had the blood clot, they're either intermediate or low risk. They're low risk if they're under 40, they're intermediate if they're 40 to 60, but we tend to treat them in a similar way. We recommend they get aspirin, but we don't usually recommend that they have blood medication to bring the blood counts down, unless they're getting symptoms. So for instance, someone's got a really high blood count, like a platelet count, like over 1500 they can have bleeding paradoxically they can get hemorrhage it's one of the, it's one of the rarer side effects of et although most patients are more likely to get thrombosis when you've got a very high platelet count you can use up all your von willebrand factor mm. so patients may bleed after operations i've seen one patient who had a really quite nasty bleed after bone marrow biopsy so platelet counts are over 1,500, sometimes over 1,200, usually over 1,500, mm. that is a risk factor for bleeding after bone marrow biopsies or any other minor procedure. And we're indeed a major procedure, so for instance childbirth, it may be a risk factor for to bleeding after, after delivery. So there are some patients who are under 60 who haven't had a blood clot who we'd recommend that we bring their blood counts down, like let's say bleeding or sometimes other symptoms, migraines, headaches are more common in people who've got higher platelet counts. But for most patients in that group, We'll recommend they have aspirin if they're not got any contraindications and just observation. And the other key thing is to manage their other cardiovascular risk factors. So if they've got hypertension, make sure that's properly managed diabetes, et cetera. It's not just treating the blood counts. It's optimising the whole kind of yeah. you know, improving their, their diet, their exercise, all that kind of sort of more holistic approach.
1: And how often might their bloods be monitored?
0: So initially, if we started them on drugs to bring their blood counts down, like hydroxycarbamide, we might need to check their bloods every two to four weeks to make sure they're coming down nicely. And once they're stable, we check the blood counts every three to four months. I mean, they alternate mostly. The patients alternate mostly between a telephone clinic and a face-to-face visit. So we see them actually face-to-face twice a year usually.
1: And can it develop into anything else and transform?
0: Occasionally. So there's a small risk of developing myelofibrosis, and that risk is probably about two to three percent per decade. So you can see it gradually does accumulate over mm-hmm. the decades. And there's an even smaller risk of it turning into acute leukemia. And again, the estimates vary, perhaps 1% per decade, something like that. There are some patients who will be at higher risk and some people will be at lower risk, depending on if you, as I mentioned, mutations, and there are some mutations which are more likely to transform and less likely. But those are the kind of ballpark figures. And what that means, of course, is for the vast majority of patients, they will never transform or the disease will never transform. And the vast majority of patients will live a normal life expectancy As long as it's properly managed in the ways we talked about, they shouldn't really run into any additional problems compared to anyone who doesn't have the disease.
1: And is PV managed in the same way in terms of treatments?
0: PV, as I said, tends to be manifest with high haemoglobin. Again, there's other causes of high haemoglobin. So someone, for instance, who's got chronic lung disease and is hypoxic may have a high haemoglobin and they sort of need that to get enough oxygen into their tissues. People who live at a high altitude, some people who've got things like chronic congenital heart, cyanotic heart disease as well, they'll need the high haemoglobin to kind of deliver the oxygen. Jack 2 mutations are seen in about 95% of patients with PV, so going a bit different to ET, whereas in about 50% in PV, it's about 95 or more percent have got a JAK2 mutation. So that's a really good test in PV, because if they don't have it, they're unlikely to have PV. And the symptoms tend to be the same. There might be a bit more of the kind of the aquagenic pruritus, the itchiness. And generally, again, we tend to risk stratify again. So patients who haven't had a clot and who are under 60 are in a sort of a lower risk group. Those who are over 60 or who have had the blood clot are higher risk. And again, if they're high risk, aspirin plus drugs to bring their counts down.
1: Like hydroxyurea.
0: Exactly. So first choice is usually hydroxycarbamide hydroxyurea. Second choice is usually interferon. We tend to prefer pegylated interferon, so that's just once a week and it's got far fewer side effects than the, the old-fashioned three times a week interferon. So those drugs, there, is, there are newer drugs, so there's a drug called ruxolitinib, which is mainly used for myelofibrosis, mm-hmm. yeah. but there's some good evidence that it is effective in polycythemia, particularly people who haven't responded adequately to hydroxycarbamide, and it's probably better at hydroxycarbamide in symptoms. So patients who've got sort of painful big spleens, which we do sometimes see in polycythemia vera, or patients who've got the symptoms like pruritus or the erythromelalgia, the pain in the, in the hands and the feet, often ruxolitinib can be transformative in terms of improving their symptoms. It's licensed, but the problem is it isn't funded. So sometimes there are ways of getting hold of that drug, but it's very much on an individualised basis if the manufacturer will allow us to. But for the majority of patients, it isn't available outside of clinical trials.
1: So for patients that really couldn't tolerate things like hydroxycarbamide, would you apply
0: for...? We can apply for it. We often don't get it. It's kind of we have to... Be able to demonstrate in many cases exceptionality, which is what what happens when you're trying to apply for an unfunded drug, and unfortunately, in most cases it'll be rejected, but occasionally we will get it. So that can be an effective drug. It certainly isn't first line. The evidence for hydroxycarbamide in the long term is very strong. People have been using it for decades, and we know that it prevents blood clots. Um, So that's patients who are over 60 who have had a blood clot before. Patients who are under 60. Again, should be on aspirin, but we tend to venesect them. So we tend to, so they'll tend to come up, usually to our day unit, and they'll usually have about half a litre of blood taken off. Sometimes that'll be isovolemic when they have IV fluids running in. Sometimes it'll be without that. And we're trying to... So there's very strong evidence that if we keep the hematocrate below 0.45 at all times, we can markedly reduce the risk of strokes, heart attacks, major events... And we know that if we keep the hematocrit below 0.45%, their risk of major thrombosis is markedly, quite dramatically reduced. So when we venesect them, we want to make sure they remain below 45% at all times. So we actually have a threshold of 43%, or 043 So if the hematocrit gets to 43% or higher, we venesect them so that try to keep them below 45% at all times.
2: We don't typically look at hematocrit on the ward. What would that kind of roughly equate to in terms compared to like hemoglobin measurements? It varies.
0: It's not doesn't directly relate to it. I mean, it, okay. it's, it's a hemoglobin probably somewhere in the hundred and thirties. Okay. But there's no direct correlation. Now PVET are sort of opposite ends of a spectrum, and there are lots of patients. So, anyways, <laughs> I've lost my No, there's always lots of patients who've got a bit of both, so they can have a high hemoglobin and a high platelet count, okay. and so it's always a bit of kind of working out what's the main issue and w- which one do we want to try to work down, because the problem is if you venisex someone, often the hemoglobin will come down and the hematocrit will come down, but the platelet count will go up as a reactive thing, because remember we said that iron deficiency yeah. is a cause of high platelets, and often, we often make these patients iron deficient. And how often did you say that that would need to happen for most people? It varies. So some people got really proliferative bone marrows, and actually you can venesect them you know, once a week, sometimes twice a week for a month, wow. two months, and their blood counts will just about shift. And then gradually what happens is it comes down, they become iron deficient, which will constrain their, their red cell production, and then they'll end up you know, needing usually venesections probably three or four times a year. If we're getting much above that, so patients are having to be venesected more than six or seven times a year, we may recommend that they move to tablets or injections rather than venesections because people generally don't like having to come in once a month for venesections. But yeah. it depends very much on what the patient preferences.
1: Yeah, how long does a venesection take?
0: It varies on you know, how big a cannula you can get in and, yeah. and how well hydrated the patient is. Some can be done and dusted in 25 minutes, some can be there for over, half, for over an hour, depending. And I
2: guess some of the patients will be coming from quite far with quite a rare disease. Are they able to access any services locally to maybe have some of these procedures or do they have to come to use? No, so certainly they're... most of them
0: will be treated in their local or regional hospital. Okay. Most patients with ET and PV don't need to come to a regional centre. The ones who we tend to get referred are those who've got complex disease, so who perhaps have had multiple clots despite being on good treatment. Mm-hmm. Or we can't get their counts well controlled, so one of the problems often is that we put them on a drug like hydroxycarbamide to bring down their haemoglobin but it ends up pushing their platelet count too low or we bring down their platelets but the haemoglobin count its getting that balance right. So that's why we've got access to some medications here that other centres don't have like and interferon, it's not widely available. So sometimes we can switch them to something different or use combinations and because obviously we see this a lot, we're quite familiar with using certain combinations, we can manage patients who otherwise would end up becoming very anaemic and needing blood transfusions or you know, their platelet count will, will be uncontrolled and or they become neutropenic. So the other problem is patients may become neutropenic. Mm. So that's kind of one of the reasons patients get referred to us. Secondly, patients get referred to us if they're younger patients. As I said, it tends to be older patients have this disease. And for younger patients, it's you know, because of the issues we talked about, like being you know, having lifelong and childbirth, or for men, obviously, wanting to conceive children. You you can't conceive whilst you're on hydroxycarbamide, so switching to an alternative drug. So that's often the reason patients get referred to us. And sometimes it's because their blood counts suddenly change. So generally patients with ET or PV will have stable blood counts for decades. Hmm. But sometimes the counts may suddenly drop. And that's one of the reasons they may get admitted, is that they've been stable and all of a sudden over a period of a couple of weeks, sometimes less, the haemoglobin suddenly drops into the 60s and they may need transfusion or something like that. And then we have to often stop their medications and investigate them just to make sure they haven't transformed and also work out whether they need a change in their medications to a different drug. One of the things I should mention, if there is a patient on ruxolitinib and they come into the ward, that drug should never be stopped cold. Ruxolitinib is a drug where you can rarely, but it's, it's well described, get a withdrawal syndrome. So if a patient's been on that, they usually need to be weaned down over about a week, Otherwise, the you know, patients can get a, a, a severe inflammatory response and end up on intensive care. So, just right. one practical point there.
1: Is there anything else from a ward perspective of a patient being admitted that
0: we'd need to think about? They are at high risk of blood clots, so the normal thromboprophylaxis, mm. low molecular heparin, BTE assessments. <laughs> and assessments. And the most important thing is keeping these patients mobile. Okay. Um, is making sure they're not in their bed. And they may be anemic if they've come in with low blood counts. But the slightly odd thing is that. Although we characterise these patients, patients who've got ET as having high platelet counts and patients who've got PV having high haemoglobin, the risk of blood clots isn't just a consequence of the high platelets or the high haemoglobin. They're actually, their white cells are often higher, but more than that, their cells are often activated. So just because someone's got a normal blood count doesn't mean they can't have blood clots. So I think it's, it's worth remembering that if these patients do come in to the ward or if they're seen on day unit or wherever, they are still at higher risk than average of blood clots, even if their blood counts look normal or they're anaemic or whatever. So just bear that in mind.
2: And if they're an inpatient, are they go going to like standard doses of prophylactic,
0: low molecular weight heparin? Generally, yes. Unless, obviously, they've had the blood clot, in which case, any treatment dose, mm-hmm. or if they've got bleeding problems. So I mentioned that patients with um, ET who've got very high platelet count may have bleeding manifestations. And there, you know, you'd want to take expert advice about what to do about reducing the local weparin, splitting it into a BD dose or omitting it altogether, depending on how bad the bleeding is. And likewise, of course, many of these patients are on aspirin. They may have been on aspirin for 20 years, so they will be at slightly higher risk of gastric ulceration, that kind of thing. So again, it's just important to do the more global assessment. Is there a root bleeding risk here in addition to the thrombotic risk?
2: From a research
0: point of view, is there anything you think that might be interesting in this sort of patient group? I think the main area of unmet need in research, well first of all is to find a cure, because there is no cure. One of the most interesting things is that pegylated interferon does appear to induce in some people a molecular remission. So whereas hydroxycarbamide basically just effectively slows down the whole myeloparesis, so it just slows down all of red cell, white cell, platelet production, interferon seems to work at a kind of a more Uh, molecular level and actually patients who may have had a JAK2 mutation when they're diagnosed, if they've been on interferon for a year or two, so certainly it's quite common for their JAK2 level to drop. You can measure the JAK2 level, it's an acquired thing so it's not usually 100%, it's usually less than 50% in ET. And often patients on interferon you can see it dropping and certainly in some centres if their counts have normalized they will actually stop the interferon and in some cases, they'll never come back. So very occasionally, there are people who've been on interferon and the disease just seems to disappear. Our suspicion is probably it'll gradually, because yeah. these are quite slow-growing diseases, mm. and maybe if you leave them four or five years, it will gradually come back. Certainly, we tend not to stop it altogether. We may switch them from being on a medium or big dose once a week to a small dose once a fortnight to even once a month, and that just seems to keep things ticking over. So that's kind of the most interesting thing, is what the mutation that drives this JAK2 or the simile mutations are very different in the way they behave to other mutations you might see in acute minor leukaemia or other cancers where they often kind of rise and rise and rise. They will often reach a certain level and then just level off and plateau and then the trick is to try to push them back down again. The, f- the fundamental question is what causes that mutation to arise in the first place? There are some people who've got certain genetic backgrounds, predispositions and by that I mean you can actually look at their DNA and certain, see certain sequences and those people seem to have an increased risk, it's not hugely increased, but compared to people who don't have that sequence, an increased risk of developing the jack 2 mutation or the Calreticulin or the MPL mutation. We don't understand what that is so there's clearly an interplay here between people's sort of genetic background and something else that maybe then triggers that mutation but we don't understand what that interrelationship is and then how interferon literally interferes with that (laughs) to to kind of, in some people, break that and then allow them to go into a molecular remission. So that's kind of the most interesting thing in the longer term, from my perspective, is not just treating the consequence of the mutations, which is the blood count and the thrombosis, it's trying to identify the underlying problem and treat that, a bit like, obviously, an imatinib Mm. um, for chronic myeloid leukemia, identify the mutation. The problem is JAK2 in ET is a much more subtle change. It's just one protein different out of hundreds of proteins compared to the normal JAK2, and that makes it very difficult to to target specifically. So even drugs like Ruxlitin, which are JAK2 inhibitors or JAK inhibitors, don't specifically target the mutation, and they work equally well regardless of whether someone's got that mutation or not. You can't directly target JAK2, certainly not the moment, the way that people have done in chronic myeloid leukemia, so it's trying to work out what the other factors are which are supporting the JAK2 and allowing the JAK2 mutation to survive and kind of plateau at a certain level Mm. and trying to change that environment to allow the JAK2 to no longer be a kind of an advantageous state and then hopefully it will go away.